This is a rhetorical question. I'm just going to tell you that from the beginning. Ever wonder why God seems to delay his promises to us? Do you ever like, wait, why did you even tell me? Couldn't you have waited about five years when we were closer? Why tell me now? We pray and God gives us a promise from his word. Have you ever had that? Where you're like, oh, I think this is a promise for me. Always have people coming up going, Cheryl, I think I got a promise. But it's like in the Bible and it's so good. I mean, would God really make this promise to me? Yes. And he gives us these promises. And it seems that he's leading us in a certain direction. And we are so excited about the promise, about the direction. And then everything stops. Nothing seems to happen. It's like construction on your house. Just sits there with a broken pipe. And you're like, what is going on? Sometimes after we receive the promise, it seems that all of a sudden God turns us in the opposite direction and we're moving further and further from the fulfillment of the promise or the situation even gets worse or seemingly more impossible to fulfill. So what is God doing during these times of delay? F.B. Meyer, who was a pastor in England at the same time that Spurgeon was a pastor, said, God's delays are not his denials. Don't we need to remember that? That God's delays are not God saying no, but God saying wait. God uses these divine delays to develop, deepen, and draw out our faith. Why? Because faith is essential. Faith is essential. It's vital to everything in our lives. It's vital to God working in our lives. Without faith, God is limited in our lives, in what he can do. I think of Mark 6, 5, when Jesus went to Nazareth. And Jesus wanted to do so much among them. But it said he could only do a few works because of their unbelief because they were uncooperative, because they, they, they kept testing and proving him. So without faith, God is limited in what and how much he can do in our lives. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, we learn that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't, you can't do anything right without faith. Without faith, our spiritual lives can never mature. We'll always be testing God. We'll be like the children of Israel. I believe, I don't believe. I believe, I don't believe. Without faith, we cannot understand like Nicodemus or enter into God's plan, God's work. It requires faith. Faith is precious to God. Faith means so much to God. God is looking for faith. When he scans the earth, according to 2 Chronicles 16, when he looks, he is looking for those whose hearts are faithful or filled with faith towards him. This is, this is what draws God's attention. Faith draws God's attention to us. Ronald Dunn, and he wrote one of my favorite books. It's called Have Faith. He quotes G.D. Watson. I don't know who G.D. Watson is, but it's such a great quote. I love it. It says, our limitless trust in God seems to satisfy him as nothing else can do because it corresponds with his eternal faithfulness. It honors his veracity, and it is a constant silent worship of all his perfection. Faith just says you are all that you say you are. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter says this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, faith is so vital 
so essential that God will do whatever it takes to develop, to deepen, and to draw it out of us. In Abraham's life, we see faith developing, deepening, and being drawn out through, one, the reiteration of God's promises and word. God comes to Abraham. He speaks, he appears, he comes in a vision, and he always reiterates the promises. Next, we see that faith is developed, deepened, drawn out by ritual and revelation of God's covenant to Abraham, by ritual. We also have rituals. We do what we call a communion. It's a ritual that reminds us. It deepens, it develops our faith. We also see it through the ruin. Are you getting the R's yet? Reiteration, ritual, ruin of carnal plans. The ruin of our own plans. And finally, this is a W, but it's close enough. The resting greater authority over us by name changing. The resting of greater authority over us. So God reiterates his promises. He repeats them with greater emphasis and greater detail and more clarity. You know, we get a promise, we're like, oh, oh, this is great. And, and we think God's gonna do it one way. And then God begins to refine and show us how that promise is going to happen. Now, God in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abraham out of Ur, then out of Haran, to follow him and go to a land that Abraham doesn't know. God leads Abraham to Canaan. Abraham's now been in Canaan for 10 years. And there have been unexpected events. There has been a famine that wasn't expected. He wasn't warned that there'd be a famine. You're going to go there. You know, often when we think, you know, God says, come, move here. I've got so much for you. It's, yes. It is like famine. You didn't, you didn't say that there would be famine. You didn't put that in the plans. You didn't tell me about famine or Egypt. You didn't tell me about family separations. You didn't tell me that there'd be a cost or this would be part of it. You didn't tell me that there'd be battles with mighty kings. I've been going through the Psalms. And one thing I realized about the Psalms is everybody has enemies. We expect to go through life without any enemies. Like everybody loves us. That's how we want. Are you, do you, are you okay without me? I love you. Are you okay with I mean, I'd like everyone to be my friend. I remember this little boy years ago. You could barely understand him, but he says, I, I don't know why kunks can't be our friends. We're like, what? Why a kunk can't be our friend? And his mother said, why a skunk can't be our friend? And he goes, why he wants to pray everybody? Why he wants to spray everybody? Like, oh. I mean, it, this little boy, I think he reminds us of ourselves. Why can't kunks be our friends? You know, why do they have to you know, do that smelly stuff? Why can't they just be nice and just save the stink for themselves? Why? Because they're afraid. And fear creates enmity. God speaks to Abram and says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Abraham had experienced victory in battle. He was shielded by God. He had been protected by God. Abraham refused the spoils of victory from the king of Sodom. But he received the reward of bread and wine and blessing from the king of righteousness, from the king of peace, the priest of the most high God, Melchizedek. But now as God reiterates his promise to Abraham, Abraham has two questions. Now remember, it's been 10 years. I love Abraham's honesty with God, and we'll see that even more as next week or as we study this next week. You'll see Abraham's honesty with God. 
And this is what he says, and I'm going to paraphrase. I don't quite understand the game plan. Have you ever said that to God? I, I, okay, I've got this promise, but I, I, I don't quite understand what you're doing. It's been 10 years. I have no biological descendants. You promised me that from my seed, and yet right now the only person that's going to inherit anything that I have is my servant, Eliezer. And... <laughs> He can inherit my goods, but you told me I was going to have all this land and I don't own one single piece of this land that you brought me to, to pass on. So who am I going to, and who am I going to pass on? Who are these invisible descendants who will get the invisible inheritance? What is going on? God reiterates and repeats his promise to Abraham. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then Abram is taken outside by God into the crisp, cool night air of the desert. And he's told to look up in the black velvet sky of Canaan and begin to count the stars. They say on a good night, that the human eye can detect 3,000 stars. But there are thousands more, and some of those stars are even blurring together. My dad had a little cabin at Green Valley, the property that Calvary owns. And we would go up there, Brian and I, and my dad had these beach chairs that you could lay down, and he had a telescope. So we took the beach chairs, and we sat outside on this balcony, and we looked up in the sky, and we we tried to count the stars. I'm so bad at that, I lose count. I used to lose count of my own children, let alone 3,000 stars. But it just seemed like the whole sky was ablaze with stars. Uh, where's the beginning? Where's the end as you look up into the sky? And as I looked at that, I thought about how even with light pollution, there are so many stars. You know, I love to look at stars, but here in my neighborhood, when I look up, I can count maybe six on a good night, right? I live not too far from a Vons that has got the neon lights on all night long. So, I mean, if a burglar comes in our house, I'll see him right away and be able to identify him. Might as well just shoot me and get it over with. But God takes Abram outside and he tells him, look now, look up. Look up. And you know, that's something that we always need to do when it comes to the promises of God. Look up. Because the answer and the fulfillment is not by looking down. And it's not by looking around. It's from looking up. Abram was to look at stars. Abram couldn't, had no control over stars. He couldn't put more stars in the sky. He couldn't reach the stars. Stars are something only God can do. Stars are something only God can touch. Abram cannot make a star. Only God can. Here, Abram's faith is developed. And it says in verse 6, And God accounted Abraham's faith for righteousness. You see, God wants to develop our place that he might place it on our account as righteousness. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot do a great enough work to merit or acquire righteousness. It's not in us. So God, knowing our inability, says, you know what? If you'll just believe in me, if you'll trust and entrust to me, then I can use that as a venue to come into you and to work through you and work for you. When we believe God, he can work his righteousness in us so that we can have the promises. Our own nature is too permeated with sin and we cannot meet the high standard of God. So God uses faith in his word and the ultimate faith in the living word Jesus to account us to reckon us as righteous. So God reiterated his 
word, his promises to Abraham. Next, God reveals his covenant to Abram, Genesis 15, 8 through 21. Abram has asked, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? What's the promise? How am I going to know? You, you said I'm going to inherit it, but what's the sign? What's the surety? Because I'm still living in a tent, and I don't own anything. So God directs Abraham to get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Abraham is to cut the heifer in half, cut the goat in half, cut the ram in half, and then put a turtle dove on one side and a pigeon on the other side. So what they would do is they would cut these sacrifices in half and put one on each side, creating an aisle, kind of like this. You could think of half a heifer here and half a heifer there. Here a half, there a half, everywhere a half, half. <laughs> creating this aisle. And then the idea with, with a covenant, you know, they didn't do paper covenants in those days. They didn't use parchment because that could be destroyed. This was an eternal covenant, so they would do rituals. So what would happen is they would cut these animals, and then the parties would stand at each end, and they would walk and meet in the middle. And the idea was this. Whoever breaks this covenant is going to end up like one of these animals, you're going to end up just torn asunder. You're almost saying, may God do to me and more if I don't. Did you ever do that? You know, I swear, I swear, stick a needle in my eye, which is a really terrible thing to say. But you know how you did that? That was this covenant. If I don't come through, then may, I, may my fate be the same as one of these animals. Abram follows the Lord's instructions, then he waits, and nothing seems to happen. He's waiting, he's waiting. These vultures try to come down on the sacrifice, and he shoes them away. And then, as the sun is going down, and Abram has been waiting, he falls into a deep sleep. And it's during this deep sleep that God begins to reveal to Abram what he is going to do in the future. His descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. This is where they will develop into a nation. They will be afflicted for 400 years, and then they will come out with great promises. As Abram wakes up, having this full revelation of what God is going to do, he expects God to call him and say, meet me, meet me in the aisle between the sacrifices. And he wakes up, he's kind of groggy, but he sees a smoking oven and a torch passing through. You see, God is saying, no, Abram, this is not for you. This promise is 100% dependent on me. This is how you will know, because I, God, will do it. This is what Paul is talking about. Uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, God, God promised it by an oath. By his own name, he says, this is 100% dependent on me. And if I don't come through with my promises, then I will cease to be God. I'll be destroyed. I will cease to be God. Abram never passes through the sacrifices. How will Abraham know? Because God himself will do it all. Then in chapter 16, we have the ruin of carnal plans. The ruin of carnal plans. When I used to teach Sunday school, sometimes I would notice the kids getting kind of antsy, like kids do. And I'd say, all right, Everyone stop, stand up, time to get the wiggles out. And I would just have them like, wiggle, who can do the best wiggles? And, you know, they would wiggle. I, ah, no, I don't think it's out of you. More wiggles. So they would do it. Oh, no, you're not wiggling enough. Let's just get all the wiggles out. And then there'd always be that child that would throw himself on the ground and, you know, knock the other kids over. But I knew that they had to get the wiggles out. And as the time was delayed, 
Abram needed to get the wiggles out. He and Sarah were getting antsy about God's promises. Sarah is getting older. She's passing quickly through her 70s. Conception and childbearing are looking more and more impossible. And at this point, Sarah concludes that God's covenant plans have nothing to do with her, that they're with Abram alone. Now remember, it's Abram who received the word of God. It's Abram who God appeared to. Sarah's been in the background. In fact, Abram even gave her to the king of Egypt, like, hey, Aver, I'm in the covenant. Do what you want with Sarah. And God protected Sarah and brought her out and told Pharaoh, don't you touch her. This man's a prophet. So she comes up with a plan. She's trying to insert herself into God's covenant, not realizing that she's part of it. She's trying to insert herself. She tells Abraham, take my handmaiden, Hagar, who we acquired in Egypt, impregnate her, and I will raise the child as my own. It's a surrogate pregnancy. And everything seems to be all right with this. It sounds good on paper. It sounds feasible. They're actually helping God out. Here we are, God. This is your plan to give us children, an heir. We don't have one. So here's a way you can do it. Isn't that great? Here's the plan, Lord. At seven o'clock on Thursday night, you know, we're going to do this and you just bless it and make it great. About seven years ago, Jasmine accompanied me to Miami, Florida for a Spanish book conference. And there was a reason she accompanied me. Mi español es muy pobre. Hers is muy bueno. And so she was my interpreter. She's so hilarious because we're sitting there and these, these people are speaking in Spanish and I want to know what's going on. I can, I can uh, grasp about every 10th word. And she says to me, she goes, do you want me to interpret this? I'm like, kind of. She's like, well, if I do, I'll miss what they're saying. But it's so bad. This person is such a heretic. They're so off. Now I really want to know what's going on, right? Then another lady gets up. She goes, this one's so good. This is like, this is so, oh boy. I'll tell you later. So good. So I'm like, Jasmine, what'd they say? Oh, I can't remember exactly, man. Which one was that again? I'm like, Jasmine. But this one lady, she got up and she spoke English. And she'd written a book, and she'd been on Shark Tank. She was absolutely gorgeous, but I think she had a surgeon's help. And she got up, and she wrote a book on how to be rich. And it was like 10 ways to be rich, and you just follow her plan, you'd be rich. And this is what she said. Because this is how God wants to save the world. He wants to make each of us rich. And when we become rich, everybody will be like, I want to be rich, so I'll accept Jesus so I can be rich. And we're thinking, um, mm -mm. something wrong with that. But you see, that's what our plans are like, isn't it? You know, we don't, we're not caring about sincerity or, you know, covenant choices. We're just thinking objective. We'll get this done. We'll make it happen. Sarah's plan, as you know, led to disaster. As soon as Hagar conceived, she began to despise Sarah. Hagar did not want to give her baby over to Sarah. Think about it. She's a little handmaiden. This is the only baby she'll ever have. It's the only descendant. It's the only relative the only thing that's really hers that she can count on. She doesn't want to give up the son in her womb. Sarah feels despised. You know, we women, we pick up on it, right? Your husband's like, wasn't that a great time? No, the wife hated me. She did not hate you. Oh, yes, she did. Honey, she said like, hello, I know, but Brian, she said, hello. There's a difference, Brian. I didn't hear that. Of course you didn't hear it because you were on your cell phone. I heard it. And then she gave me the up and down. You know that up and down like. I'm like, I didn't see that. Of course you didn't see that because you were on your phone. That's what happens, Brian. 
When you have a phone, you miss life. But we know, we women, we pick up on the vibes, don't we? We walk in, we, we pick up on the vibes. Men are like, great time. No, it wasn't. You know, yes, what do you mean it wasn't? They only served us potato chips. You know, I wanted a meal, but they were good potato chips. Yes, but, you know, we pick up on the, the vibes. We pick up on the thing that is invisible. You know, men see the visible, and even that sometimes they miss. Don't tell Brian I said that. We see the invisible. We see the spirit, the intention behind the visible. Sarah feels despised and therefore threatened. Her position is threatened as Abram's wife. She might be his wife, but she's not the mother of the heir. And she blames Abram for going along with her plan. Ever do that? You shouldn't have listened to me. I remember one time, I don't know why Brian was driving. I said, turn right. And he did. And he was like, why? I said, I don't know. I don't even know why I said it. it. Just came over me. But why did you do it? He goes, I don't know. Sarah then treats Hagar harshly. This is what we do with the threat. We try to minimize the threat. And that's what Sarah did. She treated Hagar as less than human. Hagar runs away and God finds Hagar, speaks to her, gives her promise. Now think about it. Here is this Egyptian girl, pregnant, who nobody cares about. She's just been exploited by the people of God. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And she's run away and God finds her. And he not only says, I'll be with you. I'll be that husband. I'm the God who sees. I'm the God who hears. But you're going to keep your baby. And you're going to name your baby Ishmael. God gives her a name for this child. Tells her about the nature of the child. It's, it's a promise. Why didn't God intrude and stop this carnal plan? Do you ever, like, God, why did you let me do it? Why, why does God let us do it? I believe it's because he has to get the wiggles out. God's way isn't always to keep us from failing. But sometimes God lets us fail so we can get it right. Because we tend to learn best from our mistakes. It's when we get it wrong that we learn to get it right. My son, Braden when he was a little boy. Actually, Braden's getting married a week from tomorrow. My youngest, my last one. So hopefully after this, Brian and I will be able to save money again. But Brian, Braden's getting married. But I remember when he was a little boy and he would get in trouble and he'd always look at Brian and I and say, yep, I'm not gonna do that again. Like, you know, no need to go further with this punishment. It's not going to happen again. I've learned my lesson. And God is working out of us through failure. The things that keep us from putting our full dependency on him and in him. He lets us see what our carnal plans do and where they lead and the mistake of it. Finally, the resting of authority in Genesis 17. Now think about this. For 13 years, even though there were disastrous results to this plan, Abram thinks that Ishmael is the heir that God wanted. 13 years. For 13 years, Ishmael has been told, you're the heir. For 13 years, Ishmael has been living as the only son of Abram, the prince, so to speak. Abram is now 99 years old. And God breaks the silence. For 13 years, God's been silent. So Abram just thought, this is the plan. It didn't go so easy, but now we're on the right Trajectory, everything's going to be all right. When God breaks the silence 
and speaks to him. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, God is not saying that Abram on his own has the capacity to be blameless. We already know that his dealings with Hagar are not blameless. What is God saying then? God is saying that as Abram walks before God in the presence of God, God will make Abram blameless. It's, it's the reiterating of God's reckoning of faith as righteousness to Abram. So God then reiterates again his promise to Abram. God says, I will establish the covenant. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram will be a father to many nations. And at this point in verse 5, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. The change in sound is almost imperceptible. Abram to Abraham. It's so slight. One means father or exalted father, and the other means father of a multitude. So what is the significance? Well, to name something is to claim authority over it. That's why it was so important when God said to Hagar, you will name your son Ishmael. Means you will be the mother of your son. That's what he was promising. In Genesis 2.19, perhaps you remember that God brought all the animals to Adam and said, name them. And whatever name Adam gave to the animals, that was the animal's name. What God was doing was he was establishing Adam's authority over all the animals. When Jesus met Simon, he immediately said, you are Simon, but from now on, you will be Peter. Jesus was then establishing his authority over Peter. As we continue on our study, we'll learn that Jacob will have a name change, and Jacob will become Israel as God establishes his authority over Abram, Peter, Jacob's lives. So this is God resting authority from Abraham and putting his own authority on Abraham's life. God continued to develop and clarify his promise to Abraham. He said in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He tells Abraham that nations and kings would come from him and that God will establish not only his covenant with Abraham, but to the success of descendants as an everlasting covenant, verse 7, to be their God. Then God will give Abraham and his descendants the land that Abraham is a stranger in. Side note here. He's giving it to Abraham. He says, one day you'll own this. Now, God speaks of this day, and I thought, wow. The Bible tells us, Jesus actually said, that many would come from the east and the west in the kingdom to come, and they would sit down and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's you. That's me. When's this going to happen? In the millennium. In the millennium, all the promises to Israel that have yet to be realized, they will all take place in the millennium. That's when we'll see a world still tainted by sin. What would have happened if they had only received Jesus? All those promises coming through and we'll see God's absolute greatness in the millennium. I fully expect to see Abraham and sit down and have a cup of tea with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What an expectation. I was sitting years ago, I was on an airplane, and I sat next to this rabbinic student. His book was like huge, and that's what happened. I said, that is a mighty big book you've got there. And he said, it's a rabbinic study on Abraham. I said, oh, are you studying to be a rabbi? He said, yes. I said, well, I love Abraham. 
So he started talking about Abraham. He said, I've never met a Gentile. I said, how'd you know I was a Gentile? He said, I've never met a Gentile that knew more about Abraham than I do. And I said, well, you know why I know so much? I said, well, are you okay if I talk about Jesus? And he said, sure. I said, thank you so much. I said, Jesus, who's actually your Messiah, but I stole him. He said that many will come from the east and the west, and they will sit down and eat, which is a covenant practice with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said, I'm coming from the west. And I fully expect someday to sit down and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will give Abraham and his descendants the land he was a stranger in. God gives Abraham and his descendants the sign of circumcision. Now, this is a sign, males only here, thank God. But every descendant of Abraham will bear the distinguishing mark of God's covenant with Abraham. This will be a reminder to every male that they are in a covenant of God. It will remind them of the very first promise to Abraham and what God was saying. And it's obviously a hidden promise, a promise that only those men know about. But here God is exercising authority over the most personal part of Abraham down to the successive generations of men. But it's to men. But God, God then includes Sarah in the covenant. God brings Sarah fully into this covenant. Now again, the name change is very slight. Instead of an I on the end of her name, it will be an H. Sarah and Sarai both mean princess or royalty. The change is outwardly minor, but it has to do with an inward work of God. God placing his full authority over Sarah's life and bringing her into the covenant. Just as Abraham was brought into the covenant and he has this Sign. So Sarah is brought into the covenant as well. And God says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. Verse 16. Abraham is a bit resistant to this new development. Do you see that? He falls on his face. And I want to paraphrase. Really, God? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child to a 100-year-old man? Now, that does seem like, God, am I getting this right? Really? Really, God? And then he says this. Use Ishmael. Let him live before you. Or, God, I must have misheard you. This is, you're really referring to, to Ishmael. Don't you love this? We are always wanting God to use what is already available. You know, use this bank account. Just put more into it. it. It's already done. No more weight. No extra work. No miracle required. Isn't that what we want? God, use what we already have. No miracle required. It, it could be so easy. I've made it easy for you, God. We've got Ishmael here. And in verse 19, God says, no. Don't you love that? No. God, Ishmael, let him live before you. Let that be your plan. Let that be your covenant. God says, no. No. How many of our plans that we put effort into, we put money into it, and we're like, Lord, use this. I built this for you. And God says, no. No. Then he says, Sarah, your wife, not the handmaiden, not the concubine, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. God also promises to bless Ishmael 
but not in the same manner, not in the same way as Isaac. And then God gives a time frame. This time next year, Sarah will be holding a child in her arms. Abraham then circumcised the whole household in obedience to God's word. It was an act of covenant faith. God says, this is the way you're going to come in. Not the way that you thought with a handmaiden, but this is the way that you're going to enter into all of my promises. Like Abraham, God wants to develop, deepen, and draw out our faith. And God knows exactly the circumstances in each of our lives to be able to do that. And God uses, and you're not going to like this list, he uses delays. You could, go ahead. God uses delays. Okay, thank you all four of you. God uses disastrous plans. Thank you. God uses nature or aging, aging, lines, wrinkles, need I, weakness, need I say more? Thank you. I like it when you're alive. God uses rituals. You don't have to go because that's not so bad. God uses covenants and name changes, changing our very personality, changing who the authority is in our life, taking greater authority on us in order to develop, deepen, and draw out our faith because faith is more precious than gold. More precious. It's the only currency that is of any worth in heaven. It is the way that God accounts us as righteous It is the venue through which he can reveal his greatness to us only by faith. It is how he takes authority in our lives so he can fulfill his promises to us so that he can bless us. Perhaps right now in your life, you're experiencing delays or you're dealing with disastrous results from your own plans. Perhaps maybe you're like Sarah and you feel like maybe you've misread or misunderstood or misapplied God's promises, and that's a possibility. Nevertheless, God only requires a mustard seed size of faith. That's what he uses. That's what he develops. That's what he deepens within us to grow a tree, to draw out to exemplify to others what he wants to do, what Abraham is now to us, an example of faith. Because God chose to take this man and use delays and disasters and all sorts of contrary-seeming resources to develop and to deepen and to draw out his faith, that he might make Abraham an example of faith to us. So we'd realize that we can fail and still be a hero and heroine of faith. God uses this to give us a heritage much more precious to pass on to our children. You know, right now, there's no money. There's no land. I got a few glass bowls I can pass on. But what I can pass on to my children is my faith in a God who never fails. My faith. You know, and the kids, when they call, they don't call and say, hey, mom, how are those glass bowls? They say, mom, pray for me. Mom, I'm going through this. And you know what they want? They want one of the stories of faith. Well, I understand that, Kristen. But I'll never forget when you were six years old, And God came through. Do you remember? I mean, we've got this crazy story. She was wearing her strawberry shortcake sandals. I told her not to take them off. Next thing I knew, we're almost at the car and both her sandals are off her feet. And I, she said, no, mom, I prayed. God will give me back my strawberry shortcake sandals. I said, no, he won't. She said, just try. 
I went into a store that we had not even gone through because, and I just said, you didn't find a strawberry shortcake sandal. I just did it to show her it was an impossibility. So I chose a store we weren't even in. And the lady said, oh yeah, we do. And she gave us one. And Kristen said, see mommy, she's like four. See mommy, Jesus answers. But this is only one shoe. I was such a woman of faith. This is only one shoe. We're walking out the parking lot. I took a different route to my car than I had taken before. And she's like, mommy, mommy, there it is. And we look down and there's the other shoe. And I remember she said, Jesus loves me at four. And what could I do? No. Yes, he does. I don't get this. I mean, I bought them at Payless and they're out of business now. Why? But God wanted to show a four-year-old. And when she was... 18 and she was coming back to Jesus and I was talking to her about all the promises of God. She said, mom, something that never left my consciousness, even when I was trying to walk away from the Lord, were those strawberry shortcake sandals. Isn't that amazing? Don't underestimate. My other daughter says, I could feel your prayers. Every place. It wasn't like a compliment. It was like, I could feel them. That's what I have to pass on. I have prayers that work. And I'll, I'll tell you this in closing. And I've told you this before, but I'll, I remember calling up my mom. Well, my mom called me. And my mom, with her dementia, she didn't get things right. But one number she didn't forget, and that was my home phone number. And so I'd get all sorts of crazy calls at crazy times. And I'd pick it up. She's like, hello, who is this? And I said, this is Cheryl. Cheryl, my daughter? Yes. Oh, hello. Hello, mom. I just dialed these numbers and look. Yes, yes, that's what happens. Uh, And this one time she happened to call and I was sobbing because um, Kelsey had been diagnosed with cancer and she had just come out of, um, she had just come out of an ordeal and she had just rededicated her life to the Lord and was just getting back on the straight and narrow. And she was diagnosed, two doctors. And now they were sending us to the oncologist. And Brian was taking her there for the biopsy. And I was a mess. I remember just falling on the floor. Just saying, God, how could you bring us this far to just leave us now? And it looked so sure, two doctors, two diagnoses. Now here's the biopsy. And I'm sobbing my eyes out. Kelsey's a single woman at the time. She hadn't even gotten married, not even a real boyfriend ever. And I was just sobbing, sobbing. And my mom called, hello, who is this? Cheryl, who? And I could barely say, Cheryl, because I was crying so hard. She's like, Cheryl, what's wrong? And I didn't even know if she would get it. I said, mom. And I was just so vulnerable. I said, it looks like Kelsey's got cancer. No, Brayden, I am not here right now. (laughs) It looks like Kelsey's got cancer. She's like, cancer? I said, yes. She stops. Cheryl, I want you to know something right now. I said, yes, mom. My prayers are powerful. (laughs) Okay, mom. No, I'm telling you. God hears my prayers and he works. I'm going to pray right now. And she prayed one of the most beautiful, powerful prayers I've ever heard in my life over Kelsey, over the whole situation. She hung up the phone and I thought, oh, isn't that cute? And the Lord said, no, listen to me. Her prayers are powerful. I hear those prayers. And the Lord gave me the scripture. And this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will. He hears us and we have the request that we have asked of him. She calls back. Hello. Hi, mom. Who's this? It's Cheryl. Cheryl. Now something's wrong with Kelsey. I can't remember, but I wrote it down. Now she's pregnant out of wedlock. It was like, no, And that in some ways would be preferable, but no, (laughs) she's got cancer. And my mom goes, cancer, 
why did I write down she's pregnant? I don't know. She said, oh, well, my prayers are powerful. Yes, mom, I'm going to pray. And she hung up. I started laughing. What could I do? The biopsy came back. No cancer. No cancer. That girl graduated from Bible college, met a wonderful Christian young man there. They've been married over six years now, and they're going to give me a grandbaby in February, a little boy. My mom's prayers are powerful, powerful. But so is any prayer of faith. God wants to give you powerful prayers and faith. Faith is the way. So God is not going to hold back delays, the ruin of your plans, famines, battles. He's not going to hold it back from you because to him, the most important thing is to develop, deepen, and draw out that faith. Because it's faith, faith that changes everything. And that's what God wants to do. Faith is the key to opening all the doors that God has for us. So God is always working to develop, deepen, and draw out that faith. Faith is not that we never fail, but it is that we never jump ship that God remains our God, our El Shaddai, our mighty God, our Savior. We have no one beside the Lord. That's faith. Let's pray. God, I just think about how each one of these women, you want to develop, deepen, and draw out their faith. Lord, it's not just one, but all. And Lord, we thank you that you're the God of all and one. Lord, that you want to do it in each of us. Lord, you want to give this, every woman in this place, Lord, promises. Lord, you want to give each woman in this place power in prayers. Lord, you're the God that sees. You are the God that hears. You are the God that answers. You are the El Shaddai. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that these, your women, Lord, that they would present to you their mustard seed of faith, that they would entrust it to you, Lord, that you might, as you desire to do, Lord, develop, deepen, and draw out our faith. Lord, that this world might know that Jesus is real and lives in our hearts and hears and answers prayer. Lord, that there can be no denial that God is alive and well and working on planet Earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.